0: The passage this morning actually will speak to some of that uh, confession, that idea of trying to work uh, work off our sin or uh, out good our bad and just how exhausted that can leave us as we look at rest this morning. But uh, we are in our kind of summer series of Hebrews called True and Better. Um, as the author of Hebrews will present just all these different ways that Christ is... Uh, a true and better high priest, a true and better prophet, a true and better Moses, that he's true and uh, that he's better, superior to the angels, and just all these different ways that the things that came before Christ were just pointing us to Christ, that they were a shadow or a form or a type, but not full, not complete, and not um, perfect. And so uh, we will hold Christ up and see the others kind of fall to the side or uh, not even um, compare, measure up to who he is. Uh, Last week, we talked about how Jesus is superior to the angels, because Jesus is son, he's king, he's creator, he's savior, he's our brother who suffered uh, as cool and special as angels are, they are still created, Jesus is creator, they are servants in the house, not royalty, they're not royals, and they don't save us like Jesus does, and they can't be saved uh, like we can be, and so that was an interesting kind of Uh, angle as well when you think about uh, angels and how they uh, cannot, they don't experience redemption like people do and how Scripture says that they look into, they long to look into the relationship between God and man because it's not something they experience. Um, Today we'll see how the author of Hebrews compares Jesus to Moses and shows us how Jesus is the true and better Moses. And so this is going to be Hebrews 3 uh, verse 1 through For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test, And saw my works for forty years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation. And said they always go astray in their heart. And have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Take care brothers lest there be any of you in in evil and believing heart. Leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So again, a lengthy passage, but I want us to be able to hear scripture. And sit through scripture, and now we'll kind of break down. We'll go back and look at some of the things that uh, the author of Hebrews is telling us uh, and how he is pointing to Jesus as superior to Moses. Uh, To really appreciate the idea that Jesus is greater than Moses, superior to Moses, we first have to try and appreciate how revered Moses was and is to the Jewish people. If you think about the history of Moses, the person of Moses, his life, his accomplishments, what God, his relationship with God, <clears throat> just amazing, amazing things. He's chosen and anointed. If you remember the circumstances around his birth, it was a time when they were killing the Hebrew boys because um, they didn't want this threat of, the, you know, there's too many of them, right? They were in slavery in Egypt, and so as they began to be, um, they just had the favor of God upon them. They were multiplying like rabbits, right? And so Pharaoh's kind of looking out going, uh, there's going to be too many of them, <clears throat> They're going to outnumber us, and if they realize that, it's going to be a real problem. And so he puts out this uh, order to have um, the Hebrew boys killed. Well, Moses, uh, through these miraculous circumstances and through just the favor of the Lord, right, he's rescued, Uh, he's actually raised in Pharaoh's house. And so um, just a very cool situation where he avoids death and then uh, has a unique upbringing uh, with favor from the Lord there. Uh, and later, he's commissioned, even though he has some missteps, right? He kills somebody. Uh, he flees into the wilderness. In the wilderness, God calls on him and commissions him through the burning bush. Jesus, uh, God speaks through him through this bush that's on fire but not consumed, right? This miracle, uh, and he calls and commissions Moses that he's going to be the deliverer of the people. Go and let my people go. You're going to lead them out of Egypt. in um, this great conversation between Moses and God where he tries to negotiate um, because he had never tried to do that before, obviously. And so God kind of burns his anger towards him and is like, you don't have a choice in this. Uh, I'm using you. I'm calling you, and I'm God. <clears throat> he then goes and he delivers the people of Israel out of slavery, out of Egypt, through great signs and wonders, right? you got the plagues coming, and so uh, terrible things, miraculous things, things that are done by the power of God, eventually crossing dry land, right? The, the sea is parted, and they get to cross on dry land, as the the waters are on kind of either side of them. So this huge miracle again, God's um, deliverance of the people. Um, the 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 final plague again was was the killing of the firstborn son, and so the Passover. Which there's so much there, but we're not getting into all that. Uh, but Moses is the one leading the people through all these things, right? He is the one who who receives the law from God as the people are establishing themselves as God's people. And he says, okay, here's the do's and don'ts, right? Here's the commands. Moses is the one who receives them. He's the one who goes on the mountain. He's the one who speaks face to face with the Lord, and his face is shining after he spends time with God. And so he's the lawgiver. He's also the historian. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. He's the one who recorded all of these events for the people. And so that is their scripture, if you remember, in the Old Testament, right? The people of God had the... the, the um, the Pentateuch, the first five books, Moses recorded all of those things. So he is, uh, even as F.F. F. Bruce, a, a theologian, suggested that Moses was even a greater tri- high priest for the nation of Israel than Aaron. Aaron was in the role of high priest for the people of Israel. But God, uh, Moses is really the one who intervenes, right? He's really the one who stands between um, God and the people and goes before them. And so uh, the law became so much more important eventually as the people of God are scattered. The nation of Israel is, uh, as it's overthrown and the people are scattered uh, and they don't have um, synagogues or temple, right? And so the law is all they have. And so that's why you can understand there's such a uh, a national... Identification with the law. Like, if, if I am this uh, ethnicity or of this nation, then the law is part of who I am uh, religiously, right? The law is how I know God and how I live for God. Um, the law is how it determines how I'm treated, right? If, in society, if I mess up or do something against my neighbor. And so the law had this huge, huge importance. And the one who brought them the law, again, was Moses. And so Moses is this figure in history which is up there, right on the Mount Rushmore of Hebrew leaders and heroes. If it's Father Abraham, right, King David, Moses, uh, really kind of started all of that because he's the one who freed the people and led them out into the wilderness, um, but he did not see the promised land. And so for the author of Hebrews to say, Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. Hopefully that helps us to kind of wrap our minds around how much glory they're attributing to Moses and that they're trying to give Moses because of who he is and represented in the history of the people. This, all analogies fail, especially when you're trying to compare somebody to Jesus or God, but I was trying to think, and I was trying to not think movies. Anyway, this is the best I came up with. It's kind of like when, so Brett Favre was, I assume, I think, a hero to Packers fans for many years, right? Uh, he got him a Super Bowl, right? And so that was the first after several years of no Super Bowls, uh, and he was just kind of a larger-than-life character, did all these things, and he played for a million years, right? Well, eventually he left and Aaron Rodgers comes in. Well, before Aaron Rodgers comes in, if someone had said, this is going to be the true and better Brett Favre, they'd have been like, get out of here, right? Brett's the greatest, you know, or if they were of a certain generation, they might say that, Um, and they wouldn't have believed it, right? But then Aaron Rodgers went on to surpass Brett Favre. He, I believe, was a better quarterback. Statistically, he's a better quarterback. Um, He's only 34 touchdowns behind Brett Favre. He's 231 fewer interceptions ahead of Brett Favre because Brett was just flinging it all, right, all the time, good or bad. He won one Super Bowl just like Brett did. He's got one more MVP than Brett does. But it's like saying, hey, this guy is going to be greater than who you think is the greatest. Now, think about that. We today, as Christians in a kind of a Christian culture and society, we think, well, yeah, no one's greater than Jesus. But In their society, their tradition, their history, their religion, right, their nationhood, Moses was up there. And so for someone to come in and say, Jesus is greater than Moses, whoa, like lay out the case for me. And that's what he goes on to do. Jesus surpasses the former. He surpasses Moses. Why? Well, namely, Jesus is the true and better apostle and high priest for his people, The author tells us, we read that while Moses was a faithful servant in God's house, that Jesus built and rules over the house as a son. So again, it's this idea of he built it. And traditionally, there's this idea of no matter how great a house or building is, the builder is always greater because it was their mind, their creation. And so he's saying, look, you know, Moses is part of the house, maybe the best part of the house, but Jesus built the house. Not only that, he's not just the builder, so he's greater just by default. He's the son who inhabits the house. He's royalty. He stands to inherit the kingdom, and he rules over the house, so he has authority. And so he elevates Jesus above Moses with this picture. 1 Peter 2 5 says that we're part of this house. We're living stones being built into a spiritual house. And so uh, on some since we're kind of at the same level as Moses, as great as Moses was, as great as things that he did for the Lord, he was a stone, a, build, a brick in the house, right? That's what we are as well. Jesus is greater as the builder and son. He didn't just build the house for someone else and hand over the keys, right? He has authority. He has honor. He's the son who rules over it and stands to inherit all of it. As faithful and prominent and productive and integral and impactful as Moses was, even being named in Numbers 12, 3, the most humble man on earth, which is a little awkward because he's the one who wrote that down um, about himself. But uh, if it was true and the Holy Spirit inspired those words, then he's not bragging, right? He just wrote that. As amazing as that is, and as honorable as that is, and as dignified and worthy of praise as that is, he still doesn't measure up to Jesus. You can even read in Deuteronomy 34 that Moses was buried in kind of an unmarked grave by the Lord. It's this interesting thing where he dies, and it says the Lord buried him kind of anonymously because he was such a legend, right? Can you imagine people going to just worship his remains and, um, you know, worshiping what is no longer there, right? If Moses has gone on to be with the Lord, but people would probably do things at his grave, make it into an idol, those kind of things. And so the Lord buried him anonymously, which is kind of cool. And also this, we read this, There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. There has not arisen a prophet since, it says, like Moses. This is the hero of Israel that the people have in mind, but no matter how great he was, he would never and could never fill the role that Jesus alone owns. Today's passage notes that Jesus was uh, as the apostle and high priest of our confession. We touched on high priests some last week, and next week is all about Jesus as the true and better high priest, and Will's going to preach that message so will be a deeper dive into high priest. And so this morning, just to touch on the idea of Jesus being the true and better apostle compared to Moses. Apostle literally means delegate or messenger or one who is sent with orders to carry out uh, orders. And we're discussing lowercase a apostle here. Uh, the capital A apostles in church history are kind of known as the uh, the the people who saw Jesus face to face, and so Paul counts himself as one of those apostles because he had that vision with of, of Jesus when uh, when he is converted, um, when when Jesus meets him on the road, uh, and so we're talking about lowercase a apostle, just this idea of what is an apostle, the gift or the 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 calling, the job of apostle. Um, Moses served as a lowercase a apostle. He was the sent one. He was called, chosen, commissioned by God to set the Jews free from Egypt and lead them toward the promised land. He was great and mostly faithful, uh, but he was human. He was imperfect. He was excluded from entering the promised land for disobedience and disbelief. After all that he did and accomplished and went through, he was still held out of the promised land. Fast forward to the New Testament era when uh, apostles weren't just a Christian concept. This word uh, apostle or Greek, apostolos, Rome sent out apostles to advance their empire. These apostles would show up to a place with a delegation, including soldiers, right? So there's military and there's apostles. And they would show and tell people how the Roman way of life is better, right? They're like, hey, look, this is what we're selling, like our, our way of life, and uh, as we bring in our way of life, we bring in our technology, and so we bring in our, our roads and uh, aqueducts, whatever, all that kind of stuff. Like, we'll make this place great. All you have to do is uh, live the way we tell you to live and line up with the way we tell you to line up. And so these apostles, these Roman apostles, were their ambassadors, right, for the, the empire or kingdom of Rome. And if people didn't willingly accept the Roman way, then they conformed to the ways of Rome the hard way by being conquered. Uh, And so they would subject towns to the Roman way of life, but then they would grant citizenship to those people that they had conquered. And so Rome is expanding and conquering, right? It's uh, advancing their kingdom like to the ends of the earth, basically, looking for world domination. And so when Jesus came and preached the kingdom of God, a new way of life, the way which came to be known as Christianity, he came as the true and better apostle of God's kingdom, the ambassador of the eternal kingdom, with the message and culture of heaven, inviting people to embrace this better way of living and extending heavenly citizenship to those who would believe. And though Scripture tells us that God's kindness leads to repentance, Scripture also tells us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so the apostles of Christ go with sent orders to share a message and show and tell people that the kingdom way is better than the world's way. His kingdom, Christ's kingdom, is true and better, and he is perfect in faithfulness and obedience, making him true and better than Moses, a true and better apostle for a true and better kingdom. And because Jesus is superior to Moses, rejection of Jesus is more costly than rejection of Moses. <clears throat> the author of Hebrews uh, revisits this cautionary tale of the Israelites. Telling of how they rebelled in the desert during their wandering, warning against their hardened hearts. Um, but the contrast this time is between the consequences of Israel's disbelief and the consequences of disbelieving Jesus. Disbelief or disobedience cost the Israelites entrance to the physical promised land. The only males, aged 20 or older, who were allowed to enter into the promised land were Caleb and Joshua. That's the whole list. Two names because of their faithfulness. They sent spies to go and check out the land and they came back and 10 of them were like, it's too dangerous, we're not gonna make it, not gonna happen. And Caleb and Joshua were like, God said we're gonna inherit this land. So there it is, and God's not a liar. And God honored that, he honored their faith. And they were the only two uh, able-bodied Israelite men who were allowed to enter the promised land. And so for... uh, Comparison's sake, or just for uh, context here, uh, there were about 600,000 able bodied men who left Egypt um, with Moses. The numbers, if you include women and children and elderly and all that kind of stuff, is probably like 2 million plus who leave Egypt. But that number of 600,000 was whittled down to two after all of the wondering and grumbling, and complaining and disbelief and disobedience. A harsh punishment, maybe, uh, but they were still forgiven. This wasn't eternal damnation. They just didn't enter the earthly promised land. It was an earthly temporal consequence. When it comes to rejecting Jesus, though, the punishment is far greater. Missing out on the promised land pales in comparison to missing out on eternal life with God, eternal separation from God who is perfect and loving and righteous. Rejection of Christ results in eternal separation. And that's our natural state. We're born into the world, separated from God. And so we need the grace of God. We need salvation. We need this intervention to be redeemed. And so if we reject the message of Christ, there's a really harsh consequence for that. And note that the warning here, it's not a simple gospel summary. He's not just saying you believe in Jesus and go to heaven and disbelieve and go to hell. But he's talking about how... um, the, the culture of the kingdom uh, without faith can still be experienced. Um, people can, can if so, think about today. Someone could come to church, sing the songs, be greeted, coffee, donuts, Bible study, whatever, uh, and go home, <clears throat> feel good about themselves, all while still not believing in Jesus Christ, all while not having saving faith. And so the warning here about this heart and heart is to say, look, you, these people were leaving Egypt, free from uh, slavery and oppression, uh, but they were not believing in God. And so while they experienced that, that freedom, that, that exodus, they did not really surrender their lives in faith to God. And so we get this sense from the author that uh, the series of questions, because he starts to say, who was punished and, and who died in the desert and who didn't make the promised land? It's those who left Egypt with Moses, right? Right? And so the height of heights, you would think this victory parade after all these years of slavery to be freed, and freed under such circumstances of power, signs, miracles, wonders. And so they're like, yeah, it's like a victory lap, right? It's this amazing victory parade. And so they're probably just on cloud nine, this amazing, amazing heights that they're feeling. And yet, once they get into the desert, they start to grumble and complain and, Um, There's no faith there, right? There was enthusiasm, but it fizzled over time in the face of adversity. Their trust was not in the Lord, but the circumstances of victory. Their hearts were hardened, and their unbelief led them astray. They were unable to enter the promised land because of unbelief. The scripture we just read, it tells us, right, that they died in the desert. Kent Hughes, the commentator, um, kind of phrase it this way, that the, the desert is lined with the skeletons of those who left Egypt enthusiastically, right, on fire, just really excited, but did not have faith in the God who was leading them out of oppression. This warning in Hebrews, again, it's don't harden your hearts, don't, uh, to not be discouraged by the circumstances of oppression, lacking real faith, and then miss out on eternal life, much graver consequences. But it's because there's a much greater person being rejected, right, than Moses. And While the consequences of rejection are more severe with Jesus, the reward of rest is that much greater too. Jesus offers superior rest. The author refers to the Israelites who did not enter rest because of their disbelief and disobedience, and they continue to reference Psalm 95 where God mentions his rest. Another interesting note I came across was that in the creation account, each day mentions morning and evening as a start and end to the day. But on the seventh day, when God rested, there is no mention of morning and evening. So it seems to be a nod to this idea that God began resting. He entered into his rest on the seventh day, and he continues to rest from the work of creation. We have a God who is at work, it's not like he does nothing. But there's a sense of perpetual, eternal rest in the person and character of God, and he calls it my rest. This is the rest that he offers us. He invites us to experience his rest by faith. God, the level rest. The rest of the promised land just can't compete with the rest for our souls that God is offering by faith. You know the difference between like inadequate rest and solid, deep rest, right? Sometimes you wake up and maybe there's drool on the pillow, and you're like, "What room am I in? What day is it?" Right? Like you slept hard. Like that's a complete shutdown. When your body gets to the point where it's like, "You're like can't take any more," and our bodies just go into that state of shutdown, complete deep, deep sleep. I think about that when it's this kind of circumstances rest that the world offers, and then this my rest that God offers us, right? True, complete, utter rest. Jesus said to come unto him and he would give us rest. He said he's gentle and lowly and that we can find rest for our souls. This is God's rest. Rest for the soul means not working or efforting to earn salvation. It means peace of mind that comes with knowing you are eternally sealed in the Holy Spirit. By faith, you don't have to worry if you've done enough to make it to heaven or done enough to repay Jesus for what he's done or done enough to earn your spot or done enough to outweigh your bad or done enough to be better than the person on your right or left. Jesus did the work. And by faith, we enter into rest for our souls, and so uh, we can physically sleep well at night, and so our souls are at rest all the time, and so that's the rest that God offers. Moses didn't offer that kind of rest. Jesus offers that kind of rest, <clears throat> and it says right here in chapter 4, verse 3, we who have believed enter that rest. We enter God's rest by faith. Of course, the Bible also says that faith without works is dead, So then the author says, to make every effort to enter that rest. This is not an exhortation to earn the rest, but an exhortation to strive toward the rest. Like, there it is. It's already secured for me. And spiritually, it's already mine. But until I reach that finish line and enter that time, I still have work to do. Not to earn it, right? Like, if God takes me home right now, I enter that rest. But as long as I'm alive, I strive toward that rest i press on i persevere i work towards the rest that is waiting for me we strive toward it and we're to avoid falling into disobedience a big part of this striving and persevering is bolstering our trust in god do we believe him do we trust him do we walk by faith it's faith that saved us it's faith that sustains us right Then we get to this amazing description of God's word because if anything is going to search out our entire selves and root out any disobedience or distrust, it's the word of God. It's scripture that cuts us to the quick and in harmony with the Holy Spirit highlights our disobedience and disbelief, giving us opportunities to press in and grow our belief, our trust, our faith. So Christ is the true and better Moses, offering a true and lasting rest for our souls And those who have believed, enter that rest. May we all hear and heed the words from verse 7 again. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Dig in and press on toward the rest that God offers you. Let's pray. God, thank you um, for this, this God rest. You say it's your rest that you offer us. It's eternal rest for our souls. That while the, the world sends this message, and even within ourselves, our natural inclination is, is to want to be able to, to feel right, to feel like we've done enough, to try to get scales out and, and measure our good against our bad, that, that in Christ you have said, by faith we receive his righteousness. By faith we enter into your rest. By faith, our souls can be at peace with you and at rest forever. God, thank you for just another week to see how Jesus is true and better than all the greatest and greatness that have come before him, which are tempting for us to to worship and to hold up and to esteem, and yet they were just shadows, forms of who Christ came to be the things that he fulfilled, the things he accomplished, the things that are ours by faith. There is no true and better Jesus. He is the true and better. God, we praise you for that. We thank you for that. We pray that you would, uh, as we read today, we would not let our hearts be hardened, but that we would walk by faith towards the rest that you have given to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.